this is Proverbs 6. It's not the proverb that you would have read this week if you're staying on track, but it's a proverb you would have read at least twice if you have been following along in our reading the proverb that corresponds with the day of the month. And so on January 6th, on February 6th, you would have read this powerful proverb. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Six things that the Lord hates. Six things that the Lord hates. And man, this is strong language. What happened to God is love. Well, the Lord hates these things. And when I looked up this word hate in the Hebrew, I wanted to see where else it appeared in the Old Testament so that I could understand maybe a little bit more deeply when it means hate. What, what is the feeling that we're supposed to connect with there? And what I saw is that same word hate is the same word that's used to describe the feeling that Joseph's brothers had for him after he shared his dream about having the coat of many colors. He had the coat of many colors, and I'm going to rule over you guys. And, and it said that Joseph's brothers hated him. There was this disgust, there was this disdain toward Joseph because he was sharing so arrogantly the vision that God had given him. And so the Lord has a disdain, a disgust, a hate for what I'm going to focus on today to set up this message is haughty eyes. Now, I don't know when the last time you used the word haughty, okay? We just don't use the word haughty anymore. And so when one more thing, haughty eyes is the first thing in the list, it's the first thing in the list, and what you have to know when it comes to Bible study. Lists, when things are listed out, oftentimes what's first in the list also has to do with what's most important in the list. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is a primacy. There is a priority to loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul more than your mind and strength. In the Ten Commandments, right? Very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, that really is the commandment, and then lying and cheating and all those other things. And so when we see haughty eyes in a list of six, seven things, we've really got to pay attention to, to what that means. So what does haughty mean? Well, let me show you the amplified version of this text. These six things the Lord hates, indeed seven are repulsive to him. And the Amplified says it this way, a proud look, the attitude that makes one overestimate oneself and discount others, a proud look, haughty eyes basically means to be prideful, to have an overestimation of yourself. Haughty eyes means to look upon yourself um, in pride, to look upon yourself as being better than others, that very simply is what haughty eyes means. Prideful. Now, to be prideful isn't only a bad thing because the Lord hates it. I mean, it would be enough, hopefully, for us to man. Where's their pride in my life? Because the Lord hates this. Well, more importantly than the Lord hating it is the Lord's response to pride. And several times in the New Testament, referencing another proverb, um, it says this. Let's read this in the Amplified. God is opposed to the proud and haughty. God is opposed to the proud and haughty, but continually gives the gift of grace to the humble who turn away from self-righteousness. Many versions say God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I've often said, you know, that's the way the, the, the scriptures say it. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I've said, God is on the opposite side of those with pride. God is on the opposite side. He opposes those with pride. And so with those verses in mind, uh, my title for today's message is simply this, how to get on God's good side. Come on, somebody. How to get on God's good side. How many of you would say, I don't want to be on the other side of God. I don't want God to oppose me. Do you want to be opposed by God? I mean, it's one thing to be opposed by your family members, opposed by some haters out in the world. That's hard enough. I could deal with some of the hate that we get out there, but man, to be opposed by God, I do not want that in any way, shape, or form. So here's my outline for today. I hope we're getting excited about what God might want to have to say to us today. God's going to speak and and here's the roadmap so we can follow along and arrive at our destination, praising the Lord, worshiping the Lord together. First, I want to share with you three unfortunate realities of pride. If we maintain this pride, here are some unfortunate realities that I've just seen over the years. Then we're going to get into the two eye-opening Proverbs that I think speak to this directly and will help move us towards humility. Three personal applications, three ways that we could have this go from our heads to our hearts to our hands and actually live changed lives. And let me just tell you, after these three personal applications, if I'm doing it right, you're going to be depressed. (laughs) You're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to feel incapable. You're going to be like, there's just no way I can do this if I'm preaching it right. And it's at that moment where we take our eyes off of ourself, what we need to do, and we're going to put our eyes on what God has already done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. And prayerfully, that warms our heart to sing of his praises. And so, to set the table for these Proverbs, let me just share with you why why we got to get this right around pride and humility. The first one is this. Prideful Christians are repulsive. Now, let me not speak as if I'm not one of those repulsive Christians when I have pride. But I just gotta, I just gotta say this really strongly. To be a prideful Christian, friend, it's, it's an oxymoron. It should be an impossible, it should be an impossibility, like jumbo shrimp. I mean, what? That doesn't make sense. True lie. No, it's just not possible. Prideful Christian. Because how does one become a Christian? One becomes a Christian by realizing that there's no way to have a relationship with God but through faith in Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one, no one can boast. Christians have relationship with God through faith in something someone else did. Jesus lived the perfect life, died a gruesome death, rises from the grave, and through faith in someone else's act, we have connection with God. Yet... We believe that, we praise God for that, and some way, somehow, we still believe that we've got the corner on the market on holiness. Why don't you wear a mask? Why do you wear a mask? Why isn't the church meeting yet? Why is the church meeting already? How could you vote for that president? How could you not vote for that president? Why do you respond to these social justice issues in this way? Why don't you respond to social justice issues in this way? Why are you moving and leaving the church? Come on, somebody. 
Why don't you understand why I'm leaving the church? So much pride in our opinions, so much pride in the way that things should go, so much pride, so much pride when we would have no salvation, we would have no discernment, we would have no Holy Spirit of God if it were not for the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's repulsive. And come on, don't you know that Christian who's full of pride and and you just you just stay at an arm's distance from them because it just seems like you're so sure of yourself you never pause to say i might be wrong about that gosh it is so repulsive and and it's us we've all done that we've all been the repulsive christian and if you think you never have you're the problem, okay? Now, it's one thing for Christians to be repulsive to a watching world. So many non-believers are just, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. They're so arrogant. Actually think that storming the Capitol building in the name of Jesus is the way to go. Don't mean to step on any toes, but... That's the kind of thing, the pride and arrogance of putting Jesus' name on whatever we want to put Jesus' name on. Let me just tell you, the world is like, what is going on there? But a bigger problem than that, my second burden is this, pride disunifies the church. It disunifies the church, and I have the big C church here, but let me just tell you, in our little church that could... When I look at the times when we have been disunified over certain things, when people have been disunified, at the root of that is haughty eyes, an overestimation of oneself and of one's righteousness. In our family of churches, pride has disunified. Now, not like me and Pastor Christopher, like we're good in the family church, but I'm just saying, Got to pray for Pastor Christopher and his church. Even in their first several months, there's been disunity. And that disunity has come from, from pride. You will know, they will know, that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So we need to figure this pride thing out, not because we're just repulsive to a watching world, but it, it just disunifies the family of God. And finally, confessions of pride are rare. Can I just tell you, being a pastor now, 10 years, been in pastoral ministry, I've heard people confess a lot of things. (laughs) I've heard people confess a lot of things, but rarely, rarely do I get a call. (laughs) Hey, Ed, can we meet? Hey, can I talk to you a little bit? I I just got to. Man, I'm really prideful. I just got to tell you, that's not the call I get very often. Confessions of pride are rare. Let me just ask you, when's the last time you uttered the words to anybody, to the Lord, to yourself, to your spouse? Man, I'm prideful and that needs to stop. Look, I, no no shame, no shade. It's not like I'm... I'm the person who's most excited about my pride and confessing my pride, it's not easy to do. But if pride is really underneath all the other sins, as you've probably heard it said before, we probably, as Christians, still in need of sanctification, should be confessing pride more often. Someone say amen. Should be confessing pride more often. Now, I know I said three, three burdens, but like last week, one additional thought here. Only the Holy Spirit of God can reveal where a Christian is blind to their pride. Blindness is blindness for a reason. A blind spot is a blind spot because you can't see it. If you could see it, it wouldn't be a blind spot. Someone say amen. Okay, 
So I even heard a, a pastor one time say this, that you actually, because people say, oh, I know myself best. That's like a fallacy. That's not entirely true because you may know yourself pretty well, but what you don't know are your blind spots. Someone else knows your blind spots. And so they, in some ways, can know more about you than you. You don't know everything about yourself. So what do we need? We need the Holy Spirit of God to reveal where there is pride in our lives, to reveal where God is in opposition to us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Where may you be standing in opposition to God? Where may God be in opposition to you because of your pride? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at what 2 Corinthians has to say. Paul writes this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Someone say amen. The blindness is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, we're being more like God, into the same image from one degree to another, one degree of glory to another, for this comes, how does this come, how does this transformation come, from the Lord who is the Spirit, from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is how transformation comes. This is how you become less spiritually blind as time goes along, the Holy Spirit. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stop right here. And First of all, I just want to talk to you people who are thinking about someone else's pride right now, okay? And you're thinking, oh, the Holy Spirit really needs to work in this person for this area because they're blind here. Stop that. Stop that. Stop that. Let's pray right now. Bow your heads. And the best way you know how, say, Holy Spirit of God, would you show me? Show me where I'm prideful. Show me my blind spot. Admit, admit to not knowing where you are prideful. Maybe some of you, the Holy Spirit, without you, you already know, and you need to confess that. You're prideful about your parenting. You're prideful about your political views. You're prideful about your passion for social justice. You're prideful about your occupation. You're prideful about your position in your job. You're prideful about how you serve in one way and another person doesn't. Whatever it is, let's just ask the Lord now. I'm gonna give you just a few moments for those of you who would be so bold to humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, in these next few moments during this message, would you reveal to me my pride? It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. God, would you, as I preach today, would you even reveal to me my pride? Where do I have haughty eyes? Where do I overestimate myself? Show me, Lord. Be kind to me, Lord. By the power of your Spirit, lift the veil even further. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, for everyone watching this message, whether live, listening to this message in their car after the Sunday, watching on Facebook long after it aired live, whatever it is, Lord, please be kind to us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, reveal to us blind spots so that we can live in deeper intimacy with you, so that we don't live in opposition to you, so that we can experience your grace and your favor. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God, would you humble us so we can experience your grace in a greater measure. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
All right. So those were my burdens. Prideful Christians, it's repulsive. Pride disunifies the church. And ultimately, pride is something that we just don't confess. We don't repent of very often. And so here is two Proverbs. Two Proverbs that I believe will get us moving towards the direction of humility. Moving towards the direction of humility. They appeared in our reading this week. On February 16th, you would have read this proverb. And if you read the proverb today, February 21st, you would have seen these two proverbs. Let me read them for you. I'm going to draw two points, just two points from these proverbs. Then we'll get to the application then to the gospel, and we'll let you get on the way for your afternoon. But here are the Proverbs. Let me read them to you in the English Standard Version. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Proverbs 21.2 says it this way, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Just want to draw two interpretations of this text, of these two texts, which are obviously, as you can see, very similar So just helping you with your Bible reading, you know, when you see a list of things, like I said before, what appears at the beginning of the list, pay special attention to that. And then when you see things repeated in Scripture, the reason I felt like I needed to teach from this today is because as I read this week's passage, I just saw, wow, this comes up two times, pretty much identically in the same week of reading it. God might have something to say. So you should pause when you come across things that are repeated. Now, the very first observation, the very first point I want to make from this text really doesn't require any commentaries. It's, it's right there. We've just got to see it. Look, at, look at this here. All the eyes, oh no, go back, go back. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. That says what it says. (laughs) We think we're right all of the time. You think the way you parent is right. (laughs) You think the way you love your wife is right. You think the way you love your husband is right. You think the way you talk to your wife is right. You think the way you talk to your husband is right. You think the way that you approach dating is right. You think why and what you feel about what's going on as it relates to the political landscape of our country, you are convinced. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. You think that the way you see the political landscape is right. I think the way I see the political landscape is right. You think your solutions for social justice are the best. I think when we should meet as a church is right. But you think when we should meet as a church is right. We all think that what we do and what we perceive about the world is right. Think we're right. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Our perspective of ourselves is that we are awesome (laughs) and that we are right. So here's the point I want to make from this. You will very, very rarely perceive anything you do as being wrong. That's just the human condition. And some of you are even thinking to yourself, the way I perceive me being wrong is right. 
I read that to you, and some of you said, not me. Yes, you did. I don't need to see you to know that I read this, and you said, not me. Because the way I perceive myself, you don't know me, Ed. And let me just tell, tell you, you very rarely perceive anything you do as being wrong. And some of you would say, no, I think I'm wrong all the time. But you think you're right for how you see yourself as wrong all the time. And maybe the way you perceive yourself as wrong all the time is actually unhealthy and wrong. You could actually be totally wrong in your self-esteem, which is lacking, which you think is beautiful in the sight of God, but it's actually an abomination to him because you're a child of the king. So if you're sitting there today and you're like, no, I'm woe is me all the time, and I don't think I actually do anything right. I'm always wrong. Well, let me tell you, that's wrong. (laughs) That's wrong. So don't have a view of that and think that that's pure and that's right for thinking you're always wrong. Man, I really need you. I wish you were here because I'm like, what I say at this time, are you following me? We'll very, very rarely perceive anything we do as being wrong. Okay, great point, Ed. Obvious, whatever. What else do you got? Well, let's go back to the verse. The Lord weighs the spirit. The Lord weighs the heart. What does it mean? By the Lord weighs. What does it mean? By the spirit, by the heart. Let me read um, another translation here. And I think it says ESV, that should say amplified. This is the amplified version of both of these verses. But the Lord weighs and examines the motives and intents of the heart and knows the truth. Proverbs 21, 2 in the Amplified, but the Lord weighs and examines the hearts of people and their motives. When the scripture here in the Hebrew is talking about heart and spirit, what it's talking about is motives. I like the message translation says it this way, we justify our actions by appearances. God examines our motives. God examines our motives. If we want to move from being prideful Christians towards being humble Christians, today, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about motives. The way I I say the point, the second point from the second half of the verse, why you do something is more important to God than what you do. Why you do something, why you do something, why you discipline your kids the way you do, why you don't discipline the kids the way you don't, why you voted for who you voted for is more important than who you voted for, why you wear a mask or why you don't wear a mask is more important than you actually wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Why you choose not to attend a public gathering or when we open up church again, why you choose not to attend is more important than why you attend. Why you attend is more important than just attending. Why is more important than what? Here's the big idea. Uh, Put it this way. In the kingdom of God, why is more weighty to God than what? See, we perceive our what as being right. But the scripture says God weighs the why. We typically are consumed by what is this person doing? What is this person saying? And the scripture makes it clear here. What is not as important to me as why? Why are you serving the church? Just because you give to the church doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased with you giving and serving the church because the better question is, why do you give, why do you serve? So, it's at this point where I want you to grab your Bibles. 
Come on, grab your Bibles if you got it. And I want you to turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. I hope you're doing okay. I wish I could see you. I wish I could hear you. Guys, remember when I used to do this? If you're okay, say I'm okay. Oh, let's just all shed a tear for that line. If you're okay, say I'm okay. That's where I would ask you. 1 Samuel 15. Little bit of background here. The nation of Israel is just getting going. They've already uh, been released from captivity. They've walked through the Red Sea. They've made it into the promised land. All of that has taken place. And now they want a king. Now they want a king. And the first king is a guy named Saul. And that's where we pick this up in 1 Samuel 15. Oh man, if we were together, what would I say? If you've got it, say, I've got it. If you've got it, say, I've got it. 1 Samuel 15, and I'm just going to kind of jump around here, so follow along with me. But verse 1, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Okay, so Saul is appointed king, and God has some instructions for Saul as the king of Israel. Let's look at these instructions in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Verse 3, this is very important. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Savage. Lord, strong command to Saul, kill everybody. So Saul, verse 4, summoned the people and numbered them. Verse 5, he came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites. The Amalekites were defeated. Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, important, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Look what God says to Samuel after Saul, after being explicitly told to kill everyone, to kill all the livestock, Saul spares the king. He spares the best livestock. Look at what God says to Samuel in verse 10. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Look at verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Saul's clueless. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He thinks he's all good. Blessed be to you, brother. I did it. And then Samuel said, um, Then what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the ox that I hear? If you did what God said, he said, kill everything. Why do I hear sheep and oxen? And Saul says, Here's his justification. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. He's saying we kept it so we could give it as an offering to God. I disobeyed God so I could sacrifice something to God. I didn't do what God said because I had a better idea. I wanted to give God my sacrifice. And isn't that what God wants? I don't have the time to read through all of this, but let's go to verse 21. He even 
blames the people. 21, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now pay attention to what Samuel says to him in verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You want to sacrifice to me, but that's not what God was asking for. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. If you're in your app, come on, do the little yellow highlighter thing. If you're in your Bible, star it. Some of you are like, no, I don't like to write my Bible. Okay, whatever. This is the verb. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He rejects Saul as king. Now peep this. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord in your words. Look at this. Look at his motive. Why did he disobey God? Was it because he wanted to sacrifice to God, give God a sacrifice? Look at Saul's heart. His heart is exposed here in verse 24. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It is entirely possible to do something right for God with the wrong motivation. And when you do the right thing for the wrong motivation, let me just tell you, it's the wrong thing to do. In the kingdom of God, why is more weighty to God than what? And let me just say this another way, because then we get to chapter 16. It's so beautiful how these two stories are put right up against each other. Because Saul was um, opposed now by God and rejected by God as king, he needed to find another king for the nation of Israel. Who would be the next king? Well, many of you are familiar. David of David and Goliath fame would become the king that followed Saul. But when it came to looking for the king, 16 verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, peep this, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We as Christians today are so consumed with what people are doing, with what people look like. Do we size them up as as the right person for the job? Do we size them up as the person who could do this? Based on what I see them doing, are they godly? Based on what I see them doing, are they godly? But let me just tell you, That's not how God works. God doesn't look at the outward appearances. He doesn't look solely. I'm not saying the what doesn't matter at all, but when it says the Lord weighs the motivations of the hearts, it's referencing scales and what's more weighty. If you have a scale and on one side you had what and on the other side you had why. In the economy of God, why needs to be more weighty than what. What's in the heart matters more. I hope you're with me this morning, friends. Hope this is making sense to you. Man looks at the outward appearance. What? God looks at the heart. Why? David might not have had the right look or the right experience, but he had the right heart. Let's apply this to our lives. Let's apply this to our lives. Every way of a man, all the ways of man are pure and right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. 
Why is more important than the economy of God than what? So the question now is how should we respond? How should we respond, number one? Consider your motives. There's a, there's a plethora of things in your life to consider your motives. Parenting, relationships, friendships, social media activity, job, position, title, vaccine, no vaccine, how you feel about people who get the vaccine, how you feel about people who don't get the vaccine. What are your motives? Why do you do what you do? Would you take some time this week to look at some major areas of your life and ask yourself, why do I do that, really? Why do I want that, really? Why do I engage on social media like I do? Why do I do that, really? And I felt like it would just be a good time here to talk about some motives, just as it relates to my transition. For those of you who are considering leaving, oh, Ed's leaving, I'm leaving. I would just ask you why. Why? Why would you leave this family of faith if I left? And just be honest with yourself. And here, let me just say this right here. I don't have a slide for it. Our motives will never be 100% pure before God. Just so you know. Because we're just walking contradictions. Come on, somebody. Our our motives will never be 100% pure before God. But let me tell you this. They will never be more pure before God unless you confess how they're impure before God. Hear what I'm saying there. The goal isn't to have 100% pure motivations. That's not going to happen on this side of heaven. But if you want to have more pure motivations for why you do what you do for God and for others, that starts with confessing what your impure motivations are or can be. And you can have some impure motivations for leaving. Let me tell you one. I don't like how the other guys preach. Flattering to me. Praise God that you love my preaching. But you're really going to leave a family of faith? The praying church that we are? The on-mission church that we are in Oakland? The beautiful, diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-generational family that we are because you like my preaching better than someone else's? Is that a strong enough motivation? Well, I don't know who the next pastor's gonna be. Well, we don't either. (laughs) We don't either. But there's a group of people who are committed to staying here even though we don't know who the next pastor's gonna be, even though they don't know who the next pastor's gonna be. I just want those of you who are considering leaving during this time to ask yourself why. And if you have the motivation that God is calling me to, obedience is better than sacrifice, then let's bless you on the way out for real, for real. But if it's anything less than obedience to God, I think that's a strong enough why. But let me say on the flip side of this, why are you staying? Why are you staying? You know, you could have impure motivations for staying. Oh, Ed's gone. Maybe now we could do that thing. (laughs) That thing I wanted to do that Ed didn't want to do. Now, I'm going to be able to lead us towards that thing. You staying because you want power? You staying because you want influence? 
You're staying because you want to be appreciated by the people and here's your opportunity. And I'm not saying all of those things are bad entirely. I'm just saying for those of you who are staying, all of the ways man's are pure, but the Lord weighs the motivations. The why is more important than the what. Let me just tell you this. We need people to leave who God is calling to leave, and we need people to stay who God is calling to stay. And this church will continue to be on mission in the city of Oakland for many years to come as long as the people who God is calling here to stay are staying and the people who is calling God uh, to leave to go on to their next thing are leaving. Let me just tell you this. If I stayed at this point, because I've talked to many of you and you've made me feel bad in 102 different ways, okay? But if I would consider my motives for staying, you know what the motive would be? Pleasing you. If I stayed, my motive would be I just don't want them to be uncomfortable. But you know what my motive for leaving is? And let me just tell you, I've said it, but I just want to... I just want to obey God. That's my motive. He's telling me, you're done here. He has now called me to another place. Now, when I first started the church, my motives were jacked up. I've told you about them time and time again. I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be known as that church planner. You know what one of my motives were? I, there were the other church planners in the area and they didn't really believe in me, let me just tell you, I wanted to prove them wrong. I'm going to plant a church so I can prove some people wrong. What the heck kind of motive is that? Consider your motives. Consider your motives. Whatever area, staying, going, all the other areas of your life, I got to keep it moving. Oh, Tony Evans here. He's like two, two uh, commentaries on this. Motives are tricky things. In fact, even we don't always know why we do what we do. And at times we can fool ourselves into thinking that our reasons are God's reasons. The Lord looks right through to the very center of who we are and he knows exactly what drives us. The Lord already knows what your impure motivations are. You might as well tell him what he already knows. Telling him is not for him, it's for you. It's not for him, it's for you. Tim Keller says it this way, so don't overly trust your moral instincts and motives. That's such a good word. You trust your motives way too much. We say we confront people for their own good, but really, are we just trying to punish them? Come on. We, um, oh, I think that's supposed to say, we sell ourselves, or we tell ourselves we are attracted to someone out of love, but really, is it because their looks and beauty and build our ego? <laughs> Honey, I'm talking to you right now. You say you love me because you love me, but is it for my looks, honey? <laughs> I'm telling you right now, she'll probably jump in the comments real fast. Nah, it's not about his looks. Whatever, dude, whatever. I love my wife. Let God's word search and sift your instincts and motives through study and prayer. Consider your motives. Got to move this along. Number two, consider the motives of others. I've only got several messages left. Can you guys just bear with me for a little bit longer here? Consider the motives of others. You know, last week we talked about overlooking an offense. You know what would help you to overlook an offense? Try to get close enough to someone to actually understand their motives, understand their why, before canceling them because of their what. Maybe they didn't show up to the event in person for a really good reason. And on the other side of that, maybe we decided to hold that in-person event for a really good reason. Maybe there was a pure motive before God for that. Maybe that person had a really pure motive for voting for that person, and some of you can't even conceive that. Get close enough 
to people to understand what their motives are because we need to see people have God sees people. And if God weighs the heart, we should do more motive weighing when we relate to other people. Someone say amen. Someone say amen. Here's the problem. We want people to judge us for our why, but we want to judge other people just solely on their what. Come on, don't when someone criticize you, what do you say? But I did it because. Don't just look at what I did. Please hear why I did it. I did it because, I did it because. Come on, give me a break. Come on, Christians, as we interact with one another, we all have an I did it because. How much more of a grace-filled community could we be if we allowed room for people to let us know their why? Consider the motives of others. This is why, friends, this is why, I'm telling you, Movement Church in particular, if you don't get in community, if you don't meet some people here, you will not stick very long. And if you find yourselves at odd with our community of faith, it's probably, and if you love this community of faith at one point, it's probably because you've been distant You haven't been close to me or the leadership or anyone to know why. And so you're purely seeing what and you're allowing that what to totally define who we are and maybe, just maybe, there's a why that you're unaware of. There's something in my heart. There's something in AJ's heart. There's something in Wendy's heart that you might not know, but because you're at a distance, we're disunified. Understanding someone's motive for a thing requires proximity. It requires relationship. And I know it's been hard. It's been hard during these times, but we've got to double down. We've got to double down on relationship so that we can stay unified. Come on, well, just one more thought on this. I really believe for most Christians, most Christians' motives are more pure than we think. And then don't you want people to think that about you, Christian? (laughs) Come on. We want it so bad. Know my motives. Know why I did that. Know why, know why, know why. But we don't give the time to hear other people's motives. Okay, I'm repeating myself, but I just hope by the Holy Spirit of God you're hearing what I'm saying. And last but not least, consider most Christ. Okay, remember, I told you, if I was doing my job, At this point here, you'd feel pretty bad about yourself. One, because your motives are all jacked up. And two, because you don't consider the motives of others. Someone in the comments say amen. At this point in the message, I feel pretty powerless. My motives, off the wall. Fear. People pleasing. Popularity, affirmation. Finances, my motives, off the wall. (laughs) I don't even care what other people's motives are. If I hear them say something, if I see them do something, if I see them share that post, or if I heard that they vote this way, or believe this about immigration, or believe this about this topic, done. If they believe this about abortion, done. I don't need to know why. Hopefully. The best among us now, Movement Church family, are feeling pretty down and out, and we should be. Because our hope is not in our motives getting right. Our hope is not in judging other people's motives right. Our hope is in Christ's motivation being gifted to us. He who knew no sin, Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin. 
He became our unhealthy motivations. He became the judgments that we cast on others. Those judgments were cast on his shoulders on the cross. He who knew no sin became our selfish motivations. He became our fear. He became our anxiety. He weighed all that on his shoulders. He became sin so that we could have the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Part of the righteousness of God are his pure motives. And let me tell you what the ultimate motivation of Jesus was. Let's take a look at it. One greater gospel, John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. If Jesus came down from heaven and died on the cross for our sins, sacrifice, but that's not what God wanted, that would have been the wrong move for Jesus. Jesus ultimately gave himself up because the Lord, his Father, commanded it. And here's the deal. That perfect motivation of Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus, that perfect motivation come on friends, gets credited to us. Even though we don't do everything for the will of him who sent us, God looks at us as if we did because Jesus did. This is the gospel. This is good news. This way we could rest. We could repent for the way we haven't considered our motivations. We can repent for the ways that we haven't considered others' motivations. And we could rest in Jesus' perfect motivation gifted to us. Let me draw our attention back to the 2 Corinthians passage. The gospel doesn't only tell us that we are gifted righteousness, but we are also gifted the Holy Spirit of God. The gift of righteousness helps us for our justification. We're made right in the sight of God. The gift of the Holy Spirit helps us in our sanctification, being made more into the image of God. You need both. You need justification and sanctification by the Holy Spirit. And look, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. Friends, here's the hope. Not only are we justified through the perfect motivation of Christ, but we our motivations will become more pleasing to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We will resurrect selfish motivations and they will be turning into God-honoring motivations as the Holy Spirit works that out in us. How many of us would say, I want the Holy Spirit to do this work? I want to resurrect dead motivations The same way that Jesus resurrected from the grave, I want my motivations to be turned into a beautiful thing in the sight of God by the power of his spirit. What a church we would be. What a church we would be. What a home you would have. How your kids would look at you if you considered your motives. If you were a person who was more aware of your why than your what. If you were the type of person who considered others' why instead of their what. What kind of home would you have? What kind of workplace would you have? What kind of church could the movement church be if we gave leeway to hear people's why before judging them solely on their what? Would you bow your heads and pray with me and we'll prepare our hearts to sing. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your perfect motivation to do the will of the Father. (sighs) Thank you, God, that I don't have to get my motivations completely pure before worshiping you, before approaching your throne of grace, but instead I could rest in the fact that Jesus' motivations have been gifted to me. And then, under the freedom of what the gospel provides in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would help us help us see our impure motivations. Give us a desire to get close enough to people to hear their motivations. Turn these graves, Lord, 
these graves of selfishness, these graves of impurity, these graves of doing things for you towards our ends in the same way that Saul talked about sacrifice, but doing sacrifice ultimately because he feared and wanted to obey the people. Turn our graves of motivation into gardens of obeying you, obeying you because you're worthy, because you're worthy. We love you, Lord. Do this work in the movement church in a deep way. Fill in all the gaps of this message where where they need to be filled in. I, I love you, Lord, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.